This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This week, the revelations from a number of internal Facebook documents came to light, thanks to Frances Haugen, a former employee of the social media giant. The documents reveal that the organization as the Washington Post summarized, quote, privately and meticulously tracked real world harms exacerbated by its platforms, ignored warnings from its employees about the risks of their design decisions and exposed vulnerable communities around the world to a cocktail of dangerous content. Most of us listening to the show use Facebook. And for those who don't associate themselves with their flagship product, you're probably on Instagram or use WhatsApp. So we wanted to get into some of the revelations that these documents show. But we'll also be talking about how some of the challenges that Facebook is struggling with mirror the challenges of the church and what that might mean for us as Christians. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, and I am Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right, Ted. Wow, it's been an interesting week in journalism slash the social media world. How are you processing all of it? Journalists and publishers and executive editors have strong feelings about Facebook. So I think a lot of us are still angry about Facebook, lying about any number of things as they've tried to attract publishers. Famously, they lied about video and their video metrics uh, as a way to kind of undercut YouTube and some other things. Yeah, that lying prompted a number of publishing companies to quote unquote pivot to video and do a lot of video. It turned out that people weren't actually watching those videos. Video is very expensive. And so they, a lot of those publishing companies are no longer with us in part because of those lies. You know, they've lied about other stuff too. I mean, they lied about, you know, when they bought WhatsApp, they said we, they wouldn't, you know, share data between WhatsApp and Facebook. And of course they lied about that. They've lied about all sorts of things. So, you know, I got, I've got very little love for Facebook as a company and their management style and their kind of grow big uh, at any cost. That said, you know, I rarely use the newsfeed. There are a few Facebook groups that I'm part of that I do pop on every now and then to check out. CT is still on it. We're still posting. Uh, we're still getting drips and drabs of, of traffic from them. Facebook uh, likes to do this thing where they turn on the spigot and then <laughs> incentivize you to pour resources into social media uh, efforts on social. And then they say, okay, if you want this now, you got to pay us uh, a ton of money. You've encouraged all these people to follow you on Facebook. We will give you you know, 0.2% or I don't know what number, but we'll give you a very small percentage of those people actually viewing your, your stuff in their feed unless you give us lots and lots of money. Uh, you know, whatever. I got no, I got no beef with people trying to monetize. I do not like bait and switch stuff. All right. So all that said, don't let Facebook, but in this latest batch of document dumps, I'm ashamed to admit I'm almost sympathetic to Facebook. I see a lot of the stuff and I'm like, is the main critique that they didn't do enough to stop things? 
or do they deliberately incentivize bad things? You know, hopefully we'll get into that in our conversation because there's a, there's an element for, you know, we've tried to moderate comments. There's always going to be bad actors and, and bad things that, that come through, no matter how much, uh, how much resources you put into content moderation when you have kind of, when you kind of open the, uh, open the doors wide and when you're, and when you're at a certain si- size. But I do think that deliberately incentivizing bad behavior, which there's some evidence that they did, that creates certain distaste in my mouth. But Morgan, I'm a, I'm a child of the nineties. I grew up in the, I grew up in that kind of all the stuff on the internet should be free. I am a journalist who gets very nervous about regulation uh, of media. I got a lot of, I got a lot of, mixed, <laughs> I got a lot of mixed feelings. You're in this. your feelings. Sounds I'm like in my feelings, all sorts of things to think, even though I uh, have a great distaste, you know, what, what's that saying about your values are always put to the test when you have to deal with defending the rights of, of something that you, you really, really dislike. Yeah. I really, really dislike Facebook, but, I am anxious about all this talk about regulation. Morgan, what's your gut check on the Facebook files? I think I think about Facebook kind of similarly to how I think about cars, whereas that I don't like it necessarily. I think society would be better without it. And yet there's certain conveniences that I obviously benefit from in my own life. And... (laughs) if not necessarily wean myself off of that. I also don't really use Facebook personally and I don't have my own car. So that's kind of how that looks. And by using Facebook, I'm talking about the main account. I definitely use Instagram and WhatsApp. I also have zero love for Facebook as a journalist. And I think one of the things that has been most grim to realize is how much junk there is out there at any given time that Facebook has created essentially a universe in which people who encounter misleading information, to say the least, not to mention violence, extremist propaganda, and so forth, have now an easier time accessing that than ever before, rather than places that have done their due diligence and have tried to do work. And in fact, as we know, Facebook advertising has been one of the key reasons why newspapers and publications have been blood dry because many people prefer to do their advertising through Facebook rather than through some of these traditional publications. So as a journalist, I definitely would say that I resent them. When it comes to some of these findings that are in the Facebook papers, I think the biggest thing that I've been thinking about and something we're going to get into in a little bit is about the difference in quality of what people experience on Facebook in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. And obviously, we know that it's not great in the U.S. There's been a lot of stuff happening this year when you think of COVID and misinformation and how bad that is. But I know when I've thought about moderation in the past, I've almost assumed that moderation would be much worse on other platforms. I mean... In general, when I think about places that are American, I believe that they, most of us that work in international areas have a lot of global blind spots. And I've just had questions to myself about how possibly they could be doing moderation at an adequate level overseas, given the challenges of doing work in other countries um, that are not your own. And even the, the sense of responsibility that you feel when it's not necessarily your home and you're the one that's been to called into account for that type of stuff. Having said all of that, to see all of that laid out is really depressing. So one of the things that I had read this week was from someone who had, or basically they had created like a test user newsfeed to kind of see 
what people's experience was around the world. And one Facebook researcher had just wrote, the test user's newsfeed has become a near constant barrage of polarizing nationalist content, misinformation, and violence and gore. That was really awful to think about that, I guess. And depressing considering... I know that many people who started Facebook, I know that many people that work there have a very strong desire to connect people. But just to think about all the ways that we have been radicalizing and traumatizing people at the same time through this type of platform, that that's kind of been the the result of that, regardless of the impact, is bleak. So <laughs> while we're talking about it today, uh, at the very least, I'll just be a place to process some of this stuff for me. Who is our guest to talk about this with us? Happy that we have a guest who thinks a lot about social media and the church, Chris Martin. His day job is content marketing editor at Moody Publishers, formerly at Rodman Holman. He studies internet culture and the effects of social media on broader society for fun, which is resulting in a book called Terms of Service. Comes out from Rodman Holman Publishing, B&H Publishing, I guess now. It's called Terms of Service. Not coincidentally, that is the name of his newsletter which you should subscribe to. It's a Substack thing. You can find it. We'll tell you about how to do that later in the show. But yeah, it's a really good newsletter watching social media trends, especially for Christians and folks in ministry. Chris, thanks for coming on Quick to Listen. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, glad to be here, guys. Let's start basically here. Like, Tell us a little bit about Frances Haugen and kind of some of the key revelations that she is putting out there. Yeah, the best way to summarize it is she's a former Facebook product manager, I believe. A lot of people would call her like a foot soldier. It's not like she was in the C-suite at Facebook. She was a sort of rank-and-file employee. She's a veteran of Silicon Valley. She was at Pinterest and Google, I believe, before she was even at Facebook. She left Facebook in May of 2021 and took thousands, if not tens of thousands of documents with her. Facebook, I think, has kind of alleged that she she shouldn't have done this or, or maybe that that she's in the wrong for doing so. I, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what the rules are on things like that. If they're publicly posted things within company communications, I'm not sure they have any case against her. But she, she leaked and has taken with her when she left thousands of documents detailing the inner workings of Facebook and really giving us, the broader public and Facebook users, all couple billion of us, the ability to see how this place works because it's always been so shrouded in mystery. I mean, so many Silicon Valley companies kind of feel that way. It's really the one of the best pictures we've ever had inside of Facebook because obviously they do a really good job painting a certain picture that they want people to see of what it's like inside Facebook. You know, everyone thinks of like with these Silicon Valley companies like Facebook or Google, like these folks just live at work. They've got like bean bags and free food and, you know, all kinds of amenities that encourage that they can bring their dogs or, you know, stuff like that. And this is really one of the most raw through emails, postings by people who work there. A common Facebook kind of ritual is the badge post, which is when people post on their internal Facebook, like the internal company Facebook called Workplace. When they, they're leaving, they'll post like a picture of their badge and like just a little often heartfelt or just like honest story of what their time at Facebook was like and how much, you know, how much they enjoyed working with the team or whatever. My understanding is having not seen the Facebook papers that she's released because they're not publicly available. My understanding is that she shared a lot of those like badge posts that were people who were brutally honest about how they were stonewalled in, in raising their concerns or Frances Haugen is, is a former Facebook employee who's a, a veteran of Silicon Valley. The, like the reason she went before a congressional subcommittee 
a couple of weeks ago. And the reason she was before parliament, or at least some committee of parliament this week, is because she claims that Facebook has potentially violated securities law. So like SEC law by not informing investors of issues within the company. So that was like her claim. I mean, this is a good thing. No random former Facebook employee can get the audience of a congressional committee just because they think the company's bad. That's not really how this works. You don't just like get an audience just because you're upset. But she actually has an actual claim that she, she believes that they violated securities law. Whether or not that's true, again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But what's come of it, I think, is obviously much broader and more detailed than that. So when you were reading through the news reports then this week, Chris, what was the overall gist that you were taking away from that? My feeling of what I've read, there were 50 articles posted on Monday alone because there's this consortium of 17 different journalists Uh, news outlets who were working together to wait to hold all these articles until Monday, which is also when Facebook's earnings call was. They released them all at one time. I've read seven or eight of the 50. I do plan to read all 50, believe it or not, if I can. But what I've gathered is kind of a confirmation of everything I've ever thought, which, and I don't say that like, that's not really what I was looking for. The thing is, because Facebook is so shrouded in secrecy, you get these feelings as someone who like, when I was at Lifeway, I led social media strategy at Lifeway. So I was in like, I oversaw our 270 social media accounts and I was in Facebook business manager seven hours of every day sometimes. And so like, I'm intimately aware of how Facebook works from a user, from like a corporate user perspective. And so as you use Facebook to the degree that I have, you get these feelings about what Facebook values and how, how to get stuff in front of people and what how the algorithm works. And Because there's like a point system for every piece of content that gets posted. And I always had the feeling that likes might be worth one point, stronger reactions like the angry face or the heart might be worth like five points, comments are worth like 50 points and shares are worth 100 points, right? Just because that's how engagement works. And and so I would try to like play that game and figure out how to get content in front of people. But here's the thing. Facebook never really says how that works. They never pull the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz booth and, and show you how things work. But here in these documents, we find out that that's literally like they have a point system assigned to engagement that shows that really the more passionate engagement is, the more invested, the stronger an emotion is, the more points the content receives and the more likely it is to appear at the top of people's feeds. So so to be clear, what it is, so they are saying like, a, you know, an angry face is five points and a, and a like is one point. So it is, they are rewarding anger more than love, basically. Yeah. So that's my understanding. The Washington Post has an article on this that goes into a lot of detail. I think they even have maybe screenshots from like showing this data. I think it's, it is like five, but there's a, points aside where, yeah, like an angry face earns you more attention than a like. And so there's actually what people like me have always like felt around in the shadows is probably the case we now know is the case. I've always had the feeling that Facebook knows the depths of how their platform affects people on a global scale and how like the problem that they do have, because often they'll, they'll kind of like put the problem to the side and talk about all the good things they are doing and, and not really pay attention to the problem in their public statements of how to address, you know, election security or violence around the world. But like these internal documents show, oh no, they they understood the problem they had. They just 
didn't do as much about it as most people, including their internal em- employees who were raising the alarm, thought they should. And so I think the other thing, too, is two other minor revelations, I guess. One, the best thing that comes out of this for Facebook is the FTC's monopoly case against them. Like the idea that Facebook is a monopoly is destroyed. Like this is a treasure trove of documents that shows how Facebook is hemorrhaging young people. They cannot compete with TikTok and Snapchat in reaching, I guess you call them Gen Zers, like high schoolers, college students. They are hemorrhaging young people and they know it. For Facebook, a point in Facebook's favor as far as this stuff is concerned, these documents make it very clear that Facebook is losing young people left and right. And maybe they don't have quite the monopoly that it appears they have just because of their sheer user numbers and revenue. That's one major thing. And another thing is, it definitely looks like plenty of researchers, like internal people that Facebook hired to do research on how their platform is used for good and for ill. There are plenty of researchers who have brought concerns to the fore that were just ignored or squelched in some way by Mark Zuckerberg himself or by higher-ups in general. So people within Facebook know there are problems. And there's been plenty of deliberation about these problems. But nothing was done. And a lot of the research is just kind of shelved, as we've seen in the past, with little leaks that have that have come to light. There's a great quote by Kevin Roos of the New York Times, who covers this stuff pretty regularly. He said, I'm paraphrasing, he said something to the effect of, if you hire a bunch of people on the premise of changing the world, you need to be careful or they'll take you seriously. That's what Facebook is dealing with, with Francis Haugen, with a lot of these researchers, is they came to Facebook on this with this sort of civic-mindedness, this idea that I'm going to Facebook to change the world for the good. And then when they try to do that, and they're kind of pushed aside and kind of clamped down on and said, no, yeah, we recognize that problem. We're not going to do anything about it because that would hinder growth. Then you're going to have people who leak tens of thousands of documents to the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and everybody else. In sum, then, Chris, is the basic complaint then that Facebook did not do enough to stop bad behavior or that they actually deliberately incentivized it? I think it's both. I don't think Facebook wants people to use their platform for ill, but I think they want to make money and in line with their earliest slogan of move fast and break things, I, I guess you could say there's a there seems to be a internal value of make as much money as possible at whatever cost. And this gets into like why I think Christians should care, so we might come back to this later, but the factors that lead to Facebook flourishing lead to the opposite for its users. Like Facebook flourishes when they make money. They make money when, they, when people spend more time on Facebook. People spend more time on Facebook when they're driven to strong feelings more likely of anger than anything else by sensational content. Facebook is incentivized to make people mad. That's how they make the most money because that's how people spend the most time on the platform. Facebook in order for them to make as much money as possible, their users have to be prevented from, from flourishing. Those things are, are oppositely correlated, I guess you could say, are inversely related. The more Facebook flourishes, meaning makes more money, the worse it is for their users. And I think that's more globally even than in the US. Like There's a great quote I heard earlier this week that what a lot of these papers reveal is as bad as we think Facebook is in the US or in the West generally... We have the best version of this app. We have the best version of this site. People in the global south and in countries where they don't speak English have even worse versions than we do because Facebook hasn't uh, attempted to moderate content in many, many languages. I don't think Facebook incentivizes bad behavior because they want to wreak chaos. I think they incentivize certain actions 
to make them the most money. And those actions happen to be bad. I mean, this is this is not new data. The Wall Street Journal published an internal report from Facebook from like 2017, 2018. Like researchers presented a, a slideshow in, in the company saying that the more people get angry on our platform, the more time they spend. And Facebook said, oh, that's a nice presentation. We're not going to do anything about that. Uh, and that was a few years ago. So they don't do enough to stop bad behavior and they benefit too much from bad behavior or at least mental unhealth, I guess you could say. There is some indication in some of these files that, yeah, a lot of it is about maximizing time on site and max, you know, maximizing their ability to you know, serve a lot of advertising and also to mine a heck of a lot of user data. It does seem like some decisions were also made politically, just in terms of like some of the uh, discussion about the you know Trump administration in particular, uh, complaining about Facebook, and complaining about some of these you know conservatives being silenced on Facebook or not getting views, and, and that there was an effort to kind of I guess uh, work the refs. Uh, I guess would be one way to put it. There's some indication that working the refs was successful. That some people were called off. Some of the uh, January sixth uh, efforts and some of those you know stop the steal stuff as like, hey, look, we don't want to get more attention or more criticism from some of these from some of these folks. Just look the other way is, is some of the allegation. How much does working the refs play into some of what's going on with what Facebook has been incentivizing? Yeah, there's a great article written by Jeff Horwitz, who has really led this charge for the Wall Street Journal. He writes for the Wall Street Journal, obviously, and they got access to these Facebook papers back when they were just called the Facebook files long before everyone else back in September. That's who Francis Haugen went to first. And Jeff Horwitz wrote in an article for the Wall Street Journal on September 13th, he says, Facebook says its rules apply to all and company documents reveal a secret elite that's exempt. They have a program called XCheck, or maybe it's pronounced CrossCheck, that has given millions of celebrities, politicians, and other high profile users special treatment. And he says a, a treatment that many of them abuse. And there's a specific example from back in June of 2020 when President Trump post came up during a discussion. Uh, I'm reading kind of, I'm paraphrasing from what Jeff wrote here in the Wall Street Journal piece. President Trump post came up during a discussion about Crosscheck's hidden rules that took place on the company's internal communications platform, which is Facebook Workplace, as I've mentioned before. In the previous month, Mr. Trump said in a post, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And a Facebook manager noted in an automated system that Mr. Trump's, the president's post scored a 90 out of 100, indicating a high likelihood that it violated the platform's rules. So I don't know the ins and outs of how cross-check works, but my understanding is that like AI reads content and says, hey, based on, you know, it kind of gives an, an assurance score. Like, I, you know, I'm not a person, but based on the words that are and how they're arranged in this particular Facebook post, there's an 80... 88 out of 100 chance that this is probably breaking your rules. Or, you know, maybe there's a 50 out of 100. This one apparently rated a 90 out of 100, indicating that it violated the platform's rules. For a normal user post, Horwitz writes, a such a score would result in content being removed as soon as a single person reported it. So this AI recognizes this content as probably violating the rules, but then it requires a Facebook user to kind of trigger a review by saying, hey, I think this is violating your rules, reporting it. It was not deleted or, or, or it was not, it didn't take him off the platform as it has for other normal users who aren't president of the United States. So I think just, this is my take. I know a lot of people disagree with me on this. I have friends who disagree with me on this. The idea that Facebook is like anti-conservative is so blatantly untrue. And all it takes is looking at statistics. They had a tool that they just recently shut down. 
like a Facebook tool called CrowdTangle. It used to be its own company. They bought it. Kevin Roos, who I cited before, would often post CrowdTangle data on Twitter every given day, actually during 20, the 2020 election. CrowdTangle would show the top 10 most engaged Facebook posts on any given day. And when he, he in fact, he created like an a AI Twitter account to just like do it automatically. And almost every single day, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 of the 10 most engaged posts on Facebook in any given day were Ben Shapiro, Donald Trump Jr., Fox News, like, like conservative media personalities or politicians in general. It's regularly the most engaged content on Facebook. And Facebook shut down CrowdTangle in the last six months because they said any number of reasons why. I forget even why they said so. But it was clearly not showing the picture they wanted it to show. And it was legitimate data. It was a, it was a company they purchased and, and ran out of Facebook. But they kind of disbanded the team and the, the guy who founded it left Facebook and, and they kind of scuttled that whole thing. The idea that Facebook is squelching conservatives is maybe appealing because it creates a sort of enemy and Facebook was created by you know a liberal Harvard student or whatever. There's this idea that every Silicon Valley company is liberal and bent on squelching conservatives. And I'm not saying that that censorship doesn't happen and that we may not have a problem sometime in the near future. I think that's very possible. But I think the idea that Facebook is squelching conservatives is just so easily deniable by the data that Facebook themselves have presented over the years. Yeah, actually, we used to use CrowdTangle, and I was I mean, it was just a helpful tool to understand how who was sharing your articles, right? Especially as a journalist, it was a great way to get a sense of who's reading your stuff, who's sharing your stuff, who's engaging with it. So that was disappointing when they shut that down. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Chris, I, I want to pivot a little bit to talk about things in maybe a more theological sense. We're talking about this thing that, of course, like I mentioned at the top, basically is going to touch every single person who listens to this podcast's life, right? And in many ways, to just almost every single person's life around the world. Having said all that, is there a quote-unquote Christian response to the news that we're finding out about Facebook this week? It's a great question. It's one I've thought about myself a lot over the years, honestly, as I've kind of studied social media and how it affects us. My advice is never to just log off and, and delete your accounts. Now, I think that such a course of action is totally fine and may be really smart for a lot of folks, especially folks who maybe are finding their 
self-worth and, and value in these platforms or finding you're changing, you know, it's like, man, Facebook just makes me mad or Facebook, you know, Facebook makes me envy other people or Instagram makes me think poorly of myself. I think in that case, sh- shutting down the apps for yourself, deleting your accounts or whatever is, is brilliant. You know, I talk to my 85 year old grandma every Sunday afternoon. I call her usually while I'm making dinner on Sunday evening. She has never used the internet in her life. She had a flip phone from Verizon that she got, like one of those clamshell ones that she got probably in like 2003, that she just, the same phone just replaced in 2020 because my wife and I had a daughter and she wanted to be able to see pictures of her because we don't post pictures on the internet. She didn't want me to have to keep mailing her pictures. My dad set her up with an iPhone and we have a shared like Apple iCloud photo album where we upload photos and she doesn't know how to text. She doesn't know how to use a web browser. She has no apps beyond what Apple has on their phones, but she can access the shared photo album and see pictures of our daughter. I talk to her every Sunday. Facebook comes up in our conversation probably three Sundays out of the month because she's around friends who use Facebook. Uh, In fact, the other day we were talking, uh, it was maybe two Sundays ago, we were talking, she told me, she said, Chris, Lisa told me who's her niece who helps around the house. She said, Lisa told me that there is a post on Facebook of the American flag with God bless America or or the Pledge of Allegiance written inside this picture of the American flag. She said, and Lisa told me she posted it three or four times and they kept taking it down. She said, saying it was hate speech. Can you believe that? She said, I'm, she was like, can you write to Facebook? I'm liable to write to them and tell them how terrible, how terrible this is. As you can imagine, I, I'm thinking through this and I'm like, okay, there's probably some way that actually either, either it didn't, it wasn't deleted or it, there is some way it was like actually violating terms of service that we're not aware of. So I went and looked it up and this is like a, apparently a well, a well documented piece of misinformation that people use to, the, the post is not pulled down by Facebook. People post it and in the, in the body, like in the caption of the photo say, Facebook's pulled this down, share it to keep it up. You know, it's like that kind of thing. And my grandmother, who's never used the internet and never, uh, you know, outside of the shared photo album, and has never used Facebook, was duped by fake news on Facebook. Honestly, it broke my heart. So here's, here's the point of that in my, I mean, in my view. Deleting your accounts isn't going to fix the problem. Shutting down your accounts, logging off, it's not going to make the problem go away. So what's the Christian response? I think the Christian response is to recognize that the water we're swimming in is toxic. And like the David Foster Wallace opening line from his commencement speech at Kenyon College a number of years ago, when he said, you know, we're fish swimming in water, you know, there's the older fish you swim by and the younger fish say, hey, he says to the younger fish, hey, how's the water? And they're like, hey, what the heck's water? I don't know what water is. You know, and the older fish, obviously he's older. He recognizes these fish need water to survive. They're living in water. By asking how's the water, theoretically, he knows that the water could be toxic and, and could be poisonous to them or harmful in some way. And I think we all need to realize that social media is the water we're swimming in. We're fish. We cannot escape the water. We will always, for the rest of our lives, be swimming in social media water. And my fear is that we don't even know it. We don't even know we're the younger fish. We don't even know we're swimming in water, let alone the fact that I don't even think we realize that the water is toxic. And my hope in the revelation of these Facebook papers and and anything else that there's going to be at least one new piece of information I was told every day for the next six weeks. My hope is through all of this we start to recognize that the water is toxic. Because we're fish in this analogy, I don't think the answer is like to try to extricate ourselves from the water. I don't think we can really survive outside of social media. It will always invade in one way or another. But I think if we can just have the awareness that the water is toxic, 
maybe we can breathe a little bit more carefully, put on our little fishy gas masks or whatever we need to survive in the toxicity. And I think that looks in all kinds of Christian application ways. It looks like discipline. It looks like screen time management. I think it looks like investing more time and energy in forms of media whose flourishing also lead to more human flourishing. Like I work for book publishers, so I'm biased. The more book publishers flourish, the more humans flourish. The more podcast, I think podcasts are a great medium. The more good podcasts flourish, the more we flourish. I don't think the more money Facebook makes and the more Facebook flourishes, the more we flourish. I think they're, I think they work against one another. I just think of one of the more Christian applications we could do with this is invest in forms of media. And I mean, time, invest time in forms of media whose goals are maybe a little bit more aligned with ours than Facebook or even other social media platforms. Analogies, I appreciate your, your water analogy. But I'm trying to figure out what is the water in this situation? Is it Facebook as a company? Is it the internet? I'll tell you that the problem I have is, especially when it comes to regulation and, and also I think behavior, but to, I agree with you that investing in, you know, rich learning or deep thinking media is better than, you know, some of the, the Facebook style. And I have thought in terms of regulation, I'm like, you know, how much is Facebook? We've talked before about, you know, some other kind of media regulation, especially a section, you know, 230. Facebook in some context wants to, uh, claim that they're just a network or that they're a platform. Uh, in other cases, they want to you know, portray themselves as a publisher. They want to raise the question like, well, you know, if, if, we're, if you're going to blame us, are you going to blame you know, Comcast for providing some of these pipes into people's homes? Who's at fault? Or is this just an, you know, this is the classic Christian issue. Is this just a sin issue where you have individual sinners sinning and you can never remove sin from the uh, human heart? And so we're just going to have to live, uh, learn how to live in a sinful world and not do anything about systems and incentives that exacerbate some of that sin problem. So the question that I'm getting at is, what's the water that you're calling us out of? Is it the internet? Is it Facebook specifically? Is it... Well, let me speak to the analogy you just used. Because one of the biggest... You know, for a while, I've been writing on this for a while, talking about this kind of thing for a while. I tried to do my best Neil Postman imitation, really. <laughs> and I think the... Well, that's good. Um, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm using ourselves to change my life. And I cannot recommend enough how how much more relevant that book is today even than it was in 1985. But for a long time, before the pandemic, I felt like I was banging my head against the wall with this kind of conversation because it was really hard to get anybody to recognize that the water is toxic because everybody just loves cat pictures and funny fail videos so much they don't think about how Instagram's warping their understanding of what beauty is. Like nobody wants to think about that. Nobody wants to think about the side effects of what scrolling does to them because they love what they're scrolling and looking at so much. But I think through the pandemic, people started to rely on it so much that the idol started to show its cracks. That we, we started to put so much weight on these platforms that I think they really started to show their issues. And I've had a lot easier conversation about the weaknesses and the failures of all these platforms, not just Facebook. Uh, I've had a lot easier time getting an ear on these kind of conversations in the last nine months than I did the nine or 12 months before that. I used to think that social media is a neutral tool that we just use for sinful purposes because we're broken, sinful people. I now think that idea is incorrect. And here's why. Let's say Facebook's a hammer company. And there are a bunch of us, like we're in a Nissan, Nissan Stadium down here in Nashville is where the Tennessee Titans play. You know, it holds, I don't know, 40 or 50,000 people or something like that. Let's say we got 40 or 50,000 people in Nissan Stadium and Facebook's a hammer company. And they come in and they say, hey, we're going to give you guys a tool. It's a hammer. 
and we want you to use these hammers to build things and to make the world a better place. And there are 40 or 50,000 people in Nissan Stadium who've just been given hammers. But the thing is, Facebook has actually sharpened that, that backside of the hammer where you like use it to pull the nails out. They've sharpened that part and made the front part that you, the blunt side that you used to hit nails in, they've made that part a little less appealing to use. They've made it maybe not very smooth or it doesn't, sometimes it kind of falls off. And it's like they've given us a tool that's incentivized to hurt people. It's got that sharp end of the hammer. That sharp end of the hammer is, is a lot more valuable in this tool that they've given us. Facebook has not given us a neutral tool. It's not like we just went out into the desert and discovered Facebook. Oh, wow, look at this. It's this totally not man-made thing. Now, how can we use it? Facebook is broken at its core because it's made by people who are broken at their core. Facebook's not a neutral tool, and it's not just Facebook. No social internet platform is neutral. It has incentives that incentivize certain actions. And if you give people a bunch of hammers with the sharp edge made even more sharp, and then you say, hey, however many people you can hit and and injure with this sharp thing, we're going to give you medals for that or something like that. It's like they've incentivized using the tool poorly. Like that's what they've incentivized. You get more attention and more engagement the more you use their tool in the way that they say it's not meant to be used. Oh, and by the way, Facebook also benefits when you use the tool that way. I don't buy the idea that Facebook or really any social internet company is neutral. I think the best we can hope for is finding one whose incentives for flourishing align with our incentives for flourishing. And I think that's really the best we're going to get. Nothing is neutral. And I just don't, I don't understand that. We can't get out of the water to the water part of this question. We can't get out of the water. I think we just need to recognize that the water is toxic. And what is the water? I think it's the social internet. I use social internet broader than social media because Google is the social internet, but you don't think of it as a social media platform. Social internet, I think, is a much more accurate tool with what we're dealing with here, where we connect with people around the world and exchange ideas at the speed of light. Like I genuinely think, and this is a whole other discussion, I think I think the social internet is is the most consequential technical advancement, technological advancement in human history. Now, obviously, you needed the printing press, you needed all kinds of things to get to this point. You needed electricity. But I think that the lightning fast, literally light speed exchange of information allows for a level of damage and destruction that no technology has allowed for ever. What we need to recognize is many of the tools we use, Google or otherwise, or Facebook, where it feels like we're picking on Facebook, but I mean, there's a reason. They're the largest in the world. They made $28 billion last quarter. There's a reason we pick on them. It's not just because we don't like them or something like that. They're the biggest player here, along with Google and, and a couple others are, are the big dogs in the room. All of these platforms have incentives for growth and for profit that don't necessarily align for human good and human flourishing. Like my biggest call to action when I'm having these kinds of conversations with folks, whether it's through the newsletter or speaking places or even just conversations with friends, is just consciousness. Like so many of us spend 40 hours a week looking at a big screen so that on Friday night, we can scroll on a smaller screen while our biggest screen plays Netflix in the background. Like, do we even think about this stuff? Like, I just don't even really know if we're if we're considering what scrolling Instagram for four hours a day does to us. And my biggest interest is not like abolish social media or down with Zuckerberg. Like Mark Zuckerberg is not the problem. Nobody can solve the Facebook problem. There's a great stat I saw yesterday. So I'm going to share this real quick. Facebook makes 615,417 moderation decisions every hour. Meaning they, Facebook takes down over 615,000 pieces of content every hour. The Supreme Court has decided 246 First Amendment cases ever, and Facebook decides 
theoretically, if you think about it this way, Facebook decides 615,000 First Amendment cases every hour. Facebook is, they can't control their own platform. They've moved fast and built things so quickly, they can't control their own platform. So I think the very least we could do is as we're using these tools, whether we think of them as neutral or not, is I think we can ask them to manage themselves. And if they can't manage themselves, I think regulation is in order. Now that gets into a whole other conversation. I think I share, Ted, the same concerns and nerves about that as you do. We need something to happen. We can't unring the bell as it, as the cliche goes. And I think we need something to happen to be able to control this mass communication of information. And really, it's human brokenness at scale, at a scale we've never seen before. And really, like I've called it before, I'm not the only one who's called it this, but the, the social internet is the modern tower, tower of Babel. We've built our tower. We may not share actual language, but we share a sort of language. And now we're getting to the top of building this tower and we're realizing maybe this wasn't such a good idea to begin with. And I just think at the very least, it merits us asking a bunch of questions, but we can't expect that we're going to escape this water because you will be my 85-year-old grandma who still gets duped by Facebook misinformation, even though she's never seen Facebook in her life. Well, Chris, that was a lot of good stuff that you have shared with us. Believe it or not, I have tried to get on Instagram in the past hour while we were recording this. And wouldn't you know, they actually are not letting me access my account (laughs) and have, I guess, deactivated it or something. So I thought that was funny timing that that happened while this was going on. We were having this discussion. For people who want to continue this conversation, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're curious about how you're thinking through all of these decisions. And I think, Chris, you made some good points about being far more introspective about how we are making these particular decisions. Send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Maybe there's some other parts of the Facebook papers that you also want to discuss about particularly how they affect your world or ministry. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Ted? Yeah, uh, Morgan, you know, my Precious Moment is a little bit of a repeat. I had a lovely anniversary with my wife and my birthday. I've already shared that. And I have, I think I've also shared that we've kind of have this Wednesday tradition now where my son and his friends and, and, my, and my daughter play a game uh, in our house in the living room. And my wife and I just go in the back and, and start a fire, have a little bit of a little bit of a bonfire and just sit and chat. It's been lovely. And uh, last night it was particularly lovely. And I just pulled out my phone. And I'm like, I want to capture this. And so I'm going to actually bring it, the listeners into my precious moment for a second. We had some owls in our backyard while we had the fire going. And uh, here's what it sounded like. That was truly some precious moments for me. Morgan, what was your precious moment this week? And you're on Twitter at Ted Olson. Oh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson. But people can figure that out. If they actually, after listening to all of this, actually still want to be on the socials, that's where they can find me. I guess I'll just go with some sort of easy one, which is that I watched Dune last night and made me want to write a fantasy novel. That's how I feel. I'm like, I want to think about all these things and dream up this type of stuff and figure out the world building. I'm sure there's lots of opinions. Has anyone else on this scene, Dune, Ted or Chris, have you guys seen it? I have my ticket for Saturday morning. 
That's exciting. I haven't seen it yet. Did you see it in a theater or on HBO Max? I saw it in the theater and my friends and I were the only people in the theater. <laughs> wow. Well, there's, you know, private good screening. for social distancing, I guess. Yes, exactly. Anyway, I'm not going to anyway give up any spoilers. I would appreciate if people here want to weigh in on if it's worth it to read the books. And I've heard that there's a drop off in quality or interest as they go along. I think there's what, seven books or something like that. Yeah, I'm interested in doing this, but I, I definitely was impressed also not only with like the world building, but also kind of how the moral stakes are arranged in that. So that was enjoyable. I'm glad I saw it in the theater. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Over to you, Chris. First, I will give my input on the Dune thing, if I'm allowed. Yes. I, I haven't seen the movie. I read the first book during COVID because I knew the movie was going to come out and I knew it was like like a legendary sci-fi book. It was very fine. I've read other like science fiction, sci-fi kind of stuff that I like way more. It was kind of worth it to me because I, I appreciated the foundational nature of it. But man, it is, it's a slog at points. So just be aware. Man, a precious moment for me this past week. I guess like our daughter who's 18 months old, her name is Maggie. She got COVID tested positive for COVID a couple weeks ago. And thankfully, never really had more than a snotty nose, which is great. Miraculously, I mean, neither my wife nor I got it, uh, which I'm grateful that we were vaccinated and, and didn't feel like we were, uh, we, we never got sick. And so we got to emerge from our lockdown on Monday of this week. It was weird going back to 10 days of lockdown. It was like, it's like, man, I've been here before, which is like, it was a like, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to be isolated for 10 days, which is like, was both encouraging and discouraging at the same time. But we emerged from lockdown on Monday and just in time for my wife to make it and be in the delivery room for the delivery of her best friend's daughter, which is really great. So she got to experience that and we're all healthy now. And my birthday was Sunday the 24th. So it's just been amid a COVID positive 18 month old and the nerves that come with that. It's been a really sweet last seven days or so of just some fun family moments and things like that. So I think those are maybe my precious moments for this week. Chris, tell us where people can find you outside of this. Chris Martin 17 on Twitter. I try to schedule a lot of my stuff there. I don't monitor it super closely. I try to not be on it all a whole lot, but you can find me there and I schedule links to my newsletter when it goes out. If you don't really like receiving email newsletters, you can just go to the link via Twitter. And then the newsletter is terms of service on stubs on Substack. You can just find it in the bio of my Twitter if it's easier that way. And we'll have links to that as well in our show notes. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. This transcript is done by Faith Indovu and the music is by Sweeps. If you have feedback for us, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We will see you all next week.